Have you ever looked at some products at the grocery store or even at the mall and on the back or somewhere there's a label that says satisfaction guaranteed? And that's always a comfort to know when you're on the fence about whether or not you should try something. When it says satisfaction guaranteed and things like get your money back if you're not uh, content with it, it, it always kind of makes it easier to make the purchase, doesn't it? Because you're like, what do I have to lose? If I don't like this, I can always get my money back. We get that guarantee in life. Christians have been guaranteed satisfaction because we were made for God. And we get the sense that, well, we know what it means to get satisfaction from God. It means following him. It means walking with him. But we also have this really miscued view of how to go about finding the good life, a satisfactory life. We get the sense that a satisfying life requires a satisfied God. So what we do is we go about life and the world with two different things pulling on us. On one side, we have our desires, these internal desires, these yearnings, these longings, these things that we want, we want to do. But then over here are demands. It's what other people are asking of us, or what is the decent thing to do, or the moral thing to do, or what does God ask of me? So we have these internal desires, what I want my way, and these external demands, God's way. And we go through life trying to find satisfaction, trying to find fulfillment. So what we do is we got to appease both of these. So we try to pay off the external demands. We say, okay, God, this is what you want from me. I'll give it to you, hoping that in the end there will be enough of us left, enough life left, enough time left, enough energy left to do what we want to do. C.S. Lewis talks about the Samir Christianity, and he likes it to a man who pays his taxes, the demands, and hopes that there will be enough left to live on, the desires. But he warns us that there are two problems when we live this way. You're either going to quit because it is too wearisome to constantly meet a demanding God. And what you find in the process is that you never quite satisfy these demands, so you never get satisfied in your desires. Or you become like a crabby, grumpy person, the martyr who's always sacrificing, always doing so much, but nobody notices me. And then you, in the end, become worse than a selfish person because nobody even wants to be around you who's done all this stuff, but nobody's recognized me. So in the end, we become hungrier. We're less satisfied with life. Because all we're doing is we're paying off some demanding God and we're never getting pleasure or desire. So we become hungry for satisfaction. And when we don't get that hunger fulfilled, we become hangry. Hangry. Isn't that a great word? I know many of you have heard it before, but it's a combination of hunger and anger. It's when you get all out of sorts because you're not getting what you're hungering for. We do not need hangry Christians in this world. We need satisfied, fulfilled Christians who are living the true 
good life. Not the world's good life, but the good life. Fortunately, on our pilgrimage, on our ascension, we're getting guidance from Psalm 128 in how to find the good life. Here is what we will see. The good life is a fruitful life. Fruit is the Bible's metaphor. It's its terminology for fulfillment, for satisfaction. It's also a productive life because it's producing something. Fruit is what Christians bear when they walk in God's ways. And the fruit, if you're hangry, if you're hungry for satisfaction, the fruit you bear will fulfill you. It will bring you satisfaction. It will give you the good life. So what we're going to see in our text is this truth, that the good life is a fruitful life. All right, let's read Psalm 128. It says, a song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. Yahweh bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May your children's children, may you see your children's children, peace be upon Israel. A few things I want to point out here before we see how the psalm is guiding us toward the good life, the fruitful life. Um, notice in verse 2 says, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. When we're hungering for satisfying life, it's usually because we're not getting something. We're feeling empty. In fact, we're probably always pushing our best selves out to to meet the demands the external demands upon us and then there's nothing left we we've given all of the work of our hands or yeah we've given all the labor of our hands to the demands and then when it's time for our desires there's nothing left but see this psalm says that the ones who fear Yahweh who which is defined as who walk in his ways. This isn't a trembling fear. It's a, it's a reverence. It's a respect for he knows life because he made it. So fear Yahweh means walk in his ways, all verse one. Those who walk in his ways eat the fruit of the labor of their hands. They experience satisfaction. Notice also the word blessed is used four times in this psalm. The first word, blessed, and then at the end of verse 2, you shall be blessed. And then in verse 4, thus shall the man be blessed. And then in verse 5, Yahweh bless you from Zion. See, this is the good life. It's riddled with blessing. Remember Psalm 120, how 
That's how the Psalms of Ascent begin, Psalm 120. And our psalmist is is lamenting life, that he, woe to me that I live in Meshech and I dwell among the tents of Kedar and everyone around me is a liar and I'm for peace, but the minute I say so, they're for war. And he's in this place of conflict. And it's it's meant to be a psalm that's representing the Christian in the world. Like, what is this? No. And so it starts off really tough. And the psalmist has to learn to say no to the world and yes to God. But this psalm is a far cry from where we started. Psalm 120, woe is me. And now blessed, 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 blessed. It is going very well. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we see some metaphors that we don't so much relate to, but we have to recognize that the psalmist is describing the good life according to the Jewish context in that time. So the good life looked like your wife being full of children, being pregnant all the time. That's why it says your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, and then your children will be like olive shoots around your table. So they'll be growing up, up healthy, and but they'll be around the table. See, so in our society, um, we're not trying to get as many kids as we can. We're not an agrarian society which relies upon a many children anymore. Uh, we usually have our, what's the average, like 2.5 children, right? Um, and children around your table, by today's standards, success looks like sending your children off. It's usually not considered success if your 32-year-old child is still living at home. Granted, there are instances where that's maybe temporarily necessary, but if they're still living in the basement at 32, we don't consider that success. It's a success to launch our children up into the world to live independently. However, it would have back then been so much more preferable to have your children grow up in your house and to stay in your house and they take over the estate, they take over the land, the business when father passes on. Which when you read... um the Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, why it's so offensive that that prodigal son wants to get out of the house. Give me my money, let me leave. Sometimes we don't see how offensive that is because in our minds it's, well, yeah, children grow up and they go out and we celebrate that. But this son, not just in the way he lived when he went out, not just in demanding the inheritance before his father died, but by leaving, it was offensive. So... What we're seeing in this psalm is these are back then terms for this is a successful, good life. But please notice the terminology. In verse 2, we saw the word fruit. Here we see a fruitful vine. Your wife's like a fruitful vine. And then your children like olive shoots. And then it concludes, behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. Here we get the image of fruitfulness. And fruitfulness is satisfaction. You want satisfaction guaranteed? Be a fruitful Christian. Because a fruitful life is a good life. Now, what does a fruitful life look like? I want to take you guys through three passages that look at a fruitful life. The first one is in Genesis chapter 1. And here we have a couple of connections. Um, we have the word blessed, 
first appears in Genesis chapter 1 twice. He blesses the creatures and he blesses the humans. Now we're seeing we're blessed. So the fruitful life is an Edenic life. Going back to the Garden of Eden, that's what Genesis 1 is going to show us. But also, verse 2 of Psalm 128 says, And it shall be well with you, so you shall eat the labor of the fruit of your hands, or you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you well with you so blessed and well with you that word well is the hebrew word tov tov that word is also going to show up in genesis chapter one so now that we are there that word tov is all over the place in genesis check this out genesis 1 verse 3 and god said let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was tov. He saw that the light was good. So when it says that it will be well with you in Psalm 128, it is the same Hebrew as God saw that it was good. So in other words, it will be good with you. It will be well with you. It will be good with you. Uh, it'll be well if you use better grammar. But the idea is that that's the good life. You will have the Christian good life. We're not talking about money. We're not talking about health. We're talking about a fulfilled, satisfied life that is no longer hungry nor hangry because we found a proper balance. The blessed. It recognizes we're blessed in God. You, it will be well with you. Tov. God saw that it was good. Tov. So this isn't just the good life. Look at the car I drive or the house I have or my beautiful family or, or my vehicles. I mean, look, those things are nice. But God gives us the good life not in societal terms. He gives us the good life in Edenic terms. God saw that it was tov. What's happening? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. It was empty. Darkness hovered over the surface of the deep. That there's no, no life can thrive there. Nothing is good there. But then God speaks. He gives the gift of light and he calls it tov. It is now a good life. It is good. It will be well with my creation. And it goes on every day. It says tov, tov, tov. Seven times in Genesis 1, it says tov. And of course, the climatic one is at the very end of Genesis chapter 1. And it's in verse 31. Genesis 1, 31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very tov. It's no longer just good. It's very good. His pronouncement upon everything that he had made. And then we see the third use of the word blessed in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And so we're seeing in Psalm 128, that the one who fears Yahweh lives, will bear fruit, and when you bear fruit, you will bear a good life. This is Edenic terminology. The good life looks like living as God intended us to live with him in Eden. 
Yes, the good life, the fruitful life, experiences that Edenic existence even today. Even though the ultimate fulfillment of that is to come in the new heaven and the new earth, which we're waiting for with the return of Christ, but we can experience it here in our souls, in our lives. We can have that tov. It is very good. The creator smiling upon it with pleasure. And so you see, one of the things we're beginning to realize is that God is not demanding, I need you to do this before you have your desires. We're seeing something different. God is not demanding. God is satisfied. He's smiling over everything and saying, Tov. He is satisfied. We don't have to satisfy him to get satisfaction for ourselves. This is not a payment system. He is satisfied and the good life bears the fruit of receiving his pleasure in our lives. And as Eden bore fruit, because God and humans live together in shalom, in peace, by the way, shalom is the last word, peace be upon Israel in our, in our psalm, because that peace was there, Eden bore fruit. We bear fruit. We become alive. So think of the, the word fruit as you're alive. You're alive, not just in a biological sense, but you're alive in the eternal sense. The word John uses 31 times in his gospel, Zoe. It is everlasting life, not only ongoing, but in depth and quality of existence. That kind of life is Edenic life. And we are bursting and blossoming and ripening with that life. That's the fruit we bear. A fruitful life is the good life. Second, the fruitful life. So the fruitful life is Edenic, but also the fruitful life is abundant. It is abundant. Notice in verse 3 of our psalm, it says, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. So there's this picture of a fruitful vine as your wife, right? There's an abundance of children. There's an abundance of fruit in her life. The children are all around the table. They're, they're like olive shoots. Like when you see a vine, you know, a vine doesn't just grow one or two little grapes. Like, oh, there you go. No, a vine is loaded. A healthy, fruitful vine is loaded with grapes and it will actually sag down to the ground. This is the image that there is this abundance going on. God is not stingy because God is not demanding. A demanding God causes us to experience life as less than abundant, but it's scarce. It's, ah, I only have so much. I give a little bit to God. I got to keep some for myself so I can have my pleasures and my desires. No, no. The good life, the fruitful life is an abundant life. And we will always find generosity and we will always find grace in an abundant life. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And of course, you know, you know this passage well. Um, I don't know if any of you did Bible memory when you're younger or even still, but I remember this one when I was in my youth, this was a Bible verse. I am the vine, you are the branches, right? John 15 one. So uh, there Jesus, says, I am the true vine, not just any vine. I am the true vine. Satisfaction guaranteed when you're connected to this vine. Love that. The true vine. No gimmicks. No cheaply made in some other country material here. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. 
So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. God is not just like, oh, good, you've got two little grapes on you. He wants you bursting with an abundance of fruit. So he will prune. He will cut some things out here or there. Not because he's demanding, how dare you have that, but because he realizes, look, look, we need all of me in your life. So this right here is distracting you. But look, the fruitful life is a good life. So if God is pruning something, he's not being mean. It's not going to make our life miserable. It's only going to improve the abundance we experience in our life. Now, um, you could read, read this whole chapter. It's so great. If you're not familiar with John 15, please read it. But I want to go down to verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. By this, my father is glorified. How do you want to make God look good? How do you worship God? How do you become a meaningful Christian in this world? By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And as you bear much fruit, look what it says. So prove to be my disciples. This is not only satisfaction guaranteed, but fruit is proof of purchase proof of purchase you see those like box clippings on on cereal boxes and or other things like proof of purchase and they can kind of they contribute to something like proof that you bought this you get credit for that we didn't buy our salvation that's not the proof of purchase here it's not like oh yeah i'm bearing fruit now i prove that i made it nope nope god bought us and you know he bought you when you bear much fruit by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's fantastic. That's abundance. Friends, there's no more abundant life than knowing exactly that there's proof of purchase. You have the receipt in your pocket that God bought me. How can we be stingy? How can we be hungry? How can we be hangry? How can we blow up and give up when that is guaranteed? God wants us to grow up, to fill up, and to burst with fruit. That's what he wants. And then, in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. So I'm telling you about this, how to abide with me, dwell with me. Um, you're going to be connected on the vine, you're the branches, you're going to be connected to me, you're going to bear fruit, you're going to glorify my Father, you're going to prove that you are my disciples. I'm telling you all of this so that my joy may be in you. That's great. God is, Jesus here is teaching us how to get his joy. Who's the most joyful being in the universe? It's gotta be God. His joy given to us? Yes, sign me up for that, please. But, it, but, 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 here, call now and there's more. There's more. My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There it is, abundance. He wants us not to just have his joy, but that our joy would be full. Like the image of the pregnant mother in our psalm, full. Like the image of the table surrounded by your children, full. Of course, if you have that many people, imagine the food on the table as it creaks and groans under the weight, 
full. Eating the fruit of the labor of your hands, ah, full abundance. This is what the fruitful life looks like. The fruitful life is a good life because it is an Edenic life. It is an abundant life. And third, it is a free life. It is a free life. So in Psalm 128, uh, we're getting this off of, of course, the fact that um, there's so much fruit happening in the family. And here we, we don't see a family that's restricted. We see a family that is enjoying life. That's what fruit can do. It can give us that sort of freedom. Um, for example, verse 2, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. That's the picture of freedom. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. So in other words, the, the labor of my hands, that fruit, the, the produce of my work is going to me. That's freedom. The opposite of freedom is when I work and all of it goes to someone else. That's slavery. Of course, you know, taxes make you sort of somewhere in the middle or slaves to the government, but we're also free. Of course, we willingly do that, willingly, because we understand that it's helping the government give us a better life, right? Um, here, here, the, f the fruitful life is the good life because it is a free life, because you get all 100% back. That is freedom, we need to understand this because we, remember, we can tend to imagine, okay, there's the external demands. God needs me to do this. And then there are the internal desires and they're at conflict because we can't quite do both. So we try to meet the demands so that we can go play with the desires, right? Or pursue the desires. Um, that's not freedom. That's trying to serve two masters. That's, that's being pulled back and forth. That, that's not freedom. Paying off demands and then enjoying your desires with whatever's left. That is not freedom. The fruitful life is the good life because it's the free life. Here is where we turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. The good life, the fruitful life is the good life because it is the free life. Galatians chapter 5. So we know Galatians 5 because it's, the verse, the chapter in which the fruit of the spirit is portrayed. Okay. But real quick, before we get to the fruit part, I want us to see the context of what's going on in this chapter. First of all, the letter is Paul writing to a, a group of churches. Galatia was like a region. Think like a state within America. So Galatia is like a state within Asia Minor. And he's writing to all the churches that he visited and planted there in that state of Galatia. And he's writing to them because in um in Jerusalem the Jews just determined that gentiles non-Jews who come to Christ because at first all Christians were Jews at first those were the first followers of Christ were Jews um they decided look the non-Jews don't have to be circumcised in order to be a legitimate Christian there's no demands that we're going to hold on them anymore they can follow Christ so that, that was universally agreed upon as a church. Paul's writing to the Galatian region because there are Jews there that are saying, yeah, but if you get circumcised, look, it's kind of like sub-Christian and higher-ranking Christian. 
the way we kind of do this legalistically with like, oh, you drink what? Or you see those movies? Or I can't believe you listen to that music? Or that's what you do for a living? We have these ways of sifting people between lower Christian and higher Christian. The Galatians were doing that with circumcision being the basis of it and other Jewish things like probably eating kosher food and such, uh, keeping the Sabbath on specifically Saturday. Um, Paul's writing to them because he's like, uh, no, 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 no. Freedom in Christ. Freedom. There's no demanding God and you cannot portray a demanding God. He's not demanding circumcision anymore. So we shouldn't demand circumcision anymore. See, the fruitful life is the good life because it's the free life. So Paul is going to show us the freedom of the fruit of the Spirit toward the end, the climax of his letter. So look at chapter 5, Galatians 5. It says, verse, um, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Why has he set us free? To be his slaves? No. Well, his servants, yes, but that's another message that he's clarifying. Not to be um, whipped on the back as slaves, not to be his dogs, his errand boys. No, that's not why he freed us. It's for freedom that he set us free. No strings attached. He wants us to live the good life, a fruitful life, a free life. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, Paul urges, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. These are great climatic finishing words to the letter, aren't they? Now, after some more words, he then, with that freedom in mind, he then goes into the fruit of the Spirit. So, in 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's this battle, right? God's demands, my desires. Paul's like, throw that whole paradigm out the window. If you walk by the Spirit, these desires, if any of them were wrong, they're gone. They're gone. And you are satisfying God's demands by being filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. That's all. It's not like this list of demands. Just walk by the Spirit. We'll come back to this. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Say that again. But if you are led by the Spirit, this is verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The law is telling you what to do. It's demanding. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're free. You don't have those anymore. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You are free. Okay, then he's going to show us what slavery looks like. He lists the works of the flesh. And they're not very pretty. He says in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. They're very evident. Sexual immorality, and it gives you the sense that this is not even a complete list. It's very evident. Here's just a few examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, visions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are what sinners call the good life. 
These are not the good life because they are not a fruitful life. And they're not a free life. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But there's good news. The fruit of the Spirit. So if you walk by the Spirit, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. And if you bear the fruit of the Spirit, you will live the good life, which is also an Edenic life, an abundant life, and a free life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Then he concludes, against such things. Against what things? Love, joy, peace, patience, all nine that he just said. Against those things, the fruit of the Spirit. There is no law. Friends, there is no law when we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Because laws and demands are for those who are not bearing the fruit. When we can't love each other, when we can't be kind, when we can't be faithful, that's when you need laws. But when we have the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law in the universe that can improve that life. The fruitful life is the good life. And we see it's an Edenic life, it's an abundant life, and here it's a free life. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, often people will point out that it's singular, the fruit of the Spirit. And so they will jump to the conclusion that the first one must be the fruit of the Spirit and the rest are manifestations. So in other words, the fruit of the Spirit is love, period, full stop. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Yes, love is a huge fruit of the Spirit. Jesus talks a lot about love. The Bible talks a lot about love. However, I don't think that that's giving the full context its proper due. The fruit of the Spirit is all nine qualities, all nine virtues that were named, all nine are the singular fruit. In other words, listen carefully, in other words, I cannot say, well, I've got the faithfulness part, the self-control part, and the joy part down. I've got the fruit of the Spirit. There's no cherry picking, so to speak, on these nine qualities there is one single fruit. And if we say have eight, but we don't have love, you don't have the fruit of the Spirit. You have good qualities, but it's not the fruit of the Spirit. Or in other words, it's not the proof of purchase. It's not the manifestation of God's living in your life. A fruitful life is a good life because the fruitful life will bear all nine of these. That is the fruit of the Spirit. And when you bear all nine of those, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That, my friends, bearing those qualities is a good life. That is a satisfying life. 
That is a fulfillment. That's a life that doesn't need anything else. A good life is a fruitful life. Now, back to our psalm as we wrap this up. Good life is a fruitful life because a fruitful life is an Edenic life, it's an abundant life, and it's a free life. So, I think this psalm is saying, look, you've been on this journey long enough. We're past the halfway point in the ascension. It's time to examine, are you bearing fruit? Because if you're not, there's a problem here. By now, you should be bearing fruit. By now, you should be finding satisfaction in your life with God. So, at this stage, the psalm is urging you to bear fruit. Bear fruit. Do you have fruit? Do you have the good life? And if not, or if you need to grow more fruit, there's help. The psalm guides us by telling us in the very first verse and also in the fourth verse what to do. Verse 1, blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh. Verse 4, behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. Fear God. That is how you bear fruit. And that is how you have a rich, full, satisfying, good life. Fear God. Now, to clarify again, fearing God is not trembling and cowering before him and being, oh no, where is he? What's he going to do to me? It's not a fearful life. It's fear in the sense of respect and reverence. My students found it helpful, um, so I, I'm going to assume it's going you'll find it helpful, uh, when I shared C.S. Lewis's way of differentiating fears here. He says, look, there is a tiger in the room to my right. I fear the tiger because of what it can do to me. It can hurt me. It can claw me up and eat me. There's a ghost in the room to the left of me. I fear the ghost, not because of what it can do to me, but because it's a presence, a being that I cannot understand or master or control. It's beyond me. He says that latter is like the fear of God. We don't fear him because of what he can do to us, although if he was malevolent, he could destroy us in a heartbeat. But that's not why we fear him. We've already learned that he's a good God. He wants tov in our life, right? He is not to be feared in that way. Rather, the word fear is to respect, is have reverence, is to recognize there is a being greater than I, I will therefore give it attention. I will give it respect. And, as we said earlier, verse 1 clarifies what it means to fear Yahweh in the next line. Remember, Hebrew poetry often repeats itself. And that's really helpful because if one line isn't super clear, the second line will sometimes clarify it. So what does it mean to fear Yahweh? The second line says, who walks in his ways. If you fear Yahweh, if you fear Fear God, you will walk in his ways. It means if you have respect for him as the creator of the universe and of your life, you will walk in his ways because you recognize he knows the best way to go. It's not my way. My way doesn't make sense. I cannot bear fruit in my own natural self. I can't do that. 
No matter how good I become, no matter how hard I work at being a good and decent chap, that's all I will be is a good and decent chap. Because in my natural self, I will always, always, always be a good and nice, decent chap because I'm fulfilling some sort of external demand. This is what culture wants of me. This is how I make friends. This is how I should be. This is a moral person. If I want to be a good person, I got to do these things. It's it's an external demand. And hopefully there'll be enough of me left at the end to do what I desire. But in the end, we become hungrier and we become hangry. And we don't want those people. That's not what a Christian looks like. A Christian looks like they come from Eden. A Christian lives an abundant life and they're flowing with generosity. A Christian lives a freed life and they're not super legalistic or putting demands on other people because God isn't putting demands on them. This is not a demand, fear God or else. This is, hey, fear God and walk in his ways because this will give you a fruitful life and a fruitful life will give you a good life. This is really good news. And so what we discover is that when we fear God, when we walk in his ways, what we do is we give ourselves to him. He takes that self, that natural self that is torn between demands and desires. He takes that self and he kills it. So that he can resurrect off that cross a new self and give it to us. And it's a piece of his own self. The New Testament makes it clear that this is the Holy Spirit abiding in us. God will take your natural self torn in its hunger and hangry because demands on one end and desires on the other end, he will take that self out of the picture completely and give you his self, his spirit. And now your desires and God's demands are all linked together as one and you will bear fruit. No more tension between the two. So, Christianity, is it hard or easy? Some people see Christianity as hard. I don't, I have to deny all these things. You're thinking as a natural self. I have to deny and meet these demands and then maybe I'll get to do what I want. No, that's not Christianity at all. Sinning is hard. Sinners have a hard life. They're not living the good life at least defined as an Edenic life, an abundant life, and a free life. They may be getting all the desires and pleasures that they want, but it's not Edenic, abundant, or free. It's not the good life. It's not satisfaction guaranteed. It's satisfaction for now, but when the cheap toy breaks, you'll have to seek it elsewhere. That's their life. That's not the good life. It's not satisfaction guaranteed. Christ is satisfaction guaranteed because he gives a piece of himself, his spirit to us. And that is living within us. How can you not bear the fruit of the spirit then? If God himself is within us, then of course you have love, joy, peace, patience, all the fruit of the spirit blossoming, blossoming, blooming in your life. That is the satisfied and fulfilled life. So no longer the natural self. I'm not living out of my natural self and wrestling demands and desires. I'm now living out of the spirit of God. The spirit of God fills me. And by the way, the spirit of God, the eternal density of the spirit of God inside me means there is no more room for hunger. I am completely satisfied because the infinite God of the universe who created everything is in me. 
There's no limit to what can happen. There's this unending and deep as high, unending in both directions, width and height and length, whatever. All dimensions, infinite within me. That life, that's what John calls eternal life, right? That life within me. No more hangry Brandon. Just a smile. Satisfaction guaranteed because I'm bearing fruit, which means I'm enjoying the good life. So satisfaction within is the difference. We're not looking for satisfaction out there in this item, that person, this opportunity. Satisfaction is bubbling from within. And that's why we can say that there's satisfaction guaranteed. If it's within, nobody can take that from me. No situation, no virus, no layoff, no lack of toilet paper. I don't know if people still struggling with that. Um, none of these things can take my satisfaction away. And of course, other things too. All the things in the world, nothing can take it because it's within. If my satisfaction is coming from meeting demands and doing my own desires here, and yeah, it's out there, and it, it when out there goes chaos, I go chaos. But here I have the stable triune God in his unending dance within me. I am eternally stable. I am eternally satisfied. Because I'm satisfied from within by God himself. So when we hunger for satisfaction in life, we must bear fruit by following God's ways. Which is what Paul said in Galatians. Walk by the Spirit. So the Spirit's now in me. I walk by this inner compass. I walk by the Spirit. That is what it means to fear God, to walk in his ways. So friends, if you've been in tension between God's ways and your ways, I hope that you see that that is a really bad place to do life and that you would instead allow him to, yeah, it's hard to kill you, but then it gets easy because everything he ever wanted of you is now put inside you. It's downloaded into you. It's part of your makeup, your internal being. If you want to say it's part of your DNA. That is how we can bear the fruit of the Spirit and have a good life, Edenic, abundant, and free.